Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it fast. Bring it to the fast. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, guys. I'm Jim. Uh, I'm the Leicester City fan for the EPL Roundtable. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jim Knight Tweets. Hi, Kev. Hi, Jim. Uh, nice to be back on again. My name's Sam Carp. I'm a Crystal Palace fan. Uh, I write for the Eagles Beak, and you can find me on Twitter at Sam double underscore Carp. All right, well, thanks so much for joining me today, guys. A lot going on in the Premier League right now, but I'm going to start very close to my emotional home, uh, which is Tottenham Hotspur. Terrible run for Tottenham right now. As some may recall, they were top of the table into December. Uh, things have gone slightly differently since 12 points in the last 12 games in the league means Tottenham are in their worst form in 14 years. Martin Yole was the manager at the time, for those looking for a little bit more uh, context there. Do you think that Jose Mourinho or the players are more to blame for what's happening right now at the club? It's tough, I guess, to lay too much blame at the players' feet, given that I feel... I don't know whether I'm just fundamentally opposed to enjoying Jose Mourinho's time anywhere. I just think as a as a neutral fan who he's never managed Leicester and he never will do, I would imagine. Um, but I just don't find him find him an appealing prospect from a managerial perspective and previously I think the one of the kind of things I was thinking about when I saw the running order is that previously even at United when he was there the football wasn't great but at least he had the trophies to kind of like use as a buffer against criticism in the sense of like Jose Mourinho proven winner you know when he gets appointed it's the same conversation within the media circles of like okay we know this isn't going to be you know, 1970 Brazil style football, you're not going to be playing the best football in the Premier League. However, he is a winner. He has a proven track record of winning things. And he normally does bring silverware, at least in the initial phases of his tenure. And it feels to me almost like that three year spell of like winning things, doing okay, then things start to tail off, then he leaves. It just kind of feels like that's been accelerated. I don't know whether it's the pandemic, whether it's his magic wearing off, but it just feels a little bit like He's lost his sparkle and his kind of ability to galvanise teams into his style. Maybe because teams know there's a different way now. Like in the modern era, people don't necessarily want to watch Mourinho football, um, for want of a better term, parking the bus kind of thing. Like I think the game that stuck out to me most, Kev, was the the Chelsea game a couple of weeks ago where mm. there was just zero like attacking outlet at all for at least 45 minutes. And by that point... Tottenham were 1-0 down, were playing without Harry Kane in that game. And it was like, well, what what are you expecting from that? Like, what's the best that can possibly happen for you failing to even really get any possession in the opponent's box? Yeah, I think there were three touches Um, in the opposing box. It was the match where they chose to not play Vinicius, the backup striker that we finally signed and instead continue to play Sun up front. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, I understand that kind of pragmatism if you're a Sam Allardyce's West Brom and a draw is a good enough situation and you're thinking, do you know what? Yeah, we'll take a draw here against a a big team. But for Tottenham, a team that have been in major finals recently, granted not under this manager, but have done a lot of good things and have one of the best players, you know, on the planet in Harry Kane. I know he wasn't playing in that particular match, but I mean, does Mourinho not feel like he he owes it to players like Son and to Kane that to at least offer them the opportunity to kind of do what they do best? It almost feels like you're boxing with one hand tied behind your back if you're expecting players like that to operate in a style that's so kind of ruthlessly pragmatic and defensive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to disagree with any of that. I think it's 
pretty easy to blame Mourinho and I probably would uh, towards that theory as well. But I think it's also worth exploring some of the issues with the playing squad too. I think a lot of a lot of the problems that existed when he came in are still there in a way. You know, when he replaced Pochettino, there was kind of a sense that this group of players had peaked with that Champions League final and were kind of plateauing and starting to drop off a little bit. Um, obviously, there have been some who have come in and improved the squad to an extent, if not necessarily the starting eleven. And Dombele too has really started to find his rhythm this year. But there's still... And this might sound a little bit rich coming from a Crystal Palace fan, but there is still an obvious over-reliance on a player or two players and Kane and Son. So, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think it's that much of a surprise that Spurs have regressed back to where they were after that exciting start to the season. Um, so, you know, I think maybe you can look at the players a little bit, but only in the sense that, you know, they're just maybe not as good as, as the other teams around them challenging for those Champions League places anymore. Um Having said that, I think the questions being asked about Mourinho now are sort of alarmingly similar to the ones that were being asked when he was at United. Mm. And if I was a Spurs fan, I'd probably be worried about the direction this is now going, which from following you on Twitter, Kev, it seems like they are starting to do. Um, You know, this just kind of this just seems to be what he does to teams now. You know, he, he goes into a club and irrespective of the evidence in front of him, of the players at his disposal, he tries to implement these rigid systems built on being solid at the back and, you know, more of a threat on the break. And, you know, that would be fine if the squad was suited to that. But Spurs' strength is going forward. Their weakness is at the back. So it seems, you know, <laughs> self-defeating self-defeating in a way to be persisting with this system, which ultimately just nullifies the influence of the players who are more likely to pick, to pick points up for Spurs. Um, and again, you know, there are just these kind of, these other telltale signs creeping in that suggest things aren't quite right. And it, again, it's just mirroring the issues that he had at United. You know, you've got the you've got the falling out with high profile players. In this case, it seems to be Bale and and Deli Ali at United. It was Pogba, I think, and one or two others. Um, he's already becoming a lot more prickly in his interviews. Um, you know, when he arrived at Spurs, it was meant to be happy Jose again. He was he was trying to be this charming guy shake this view of him as essentially a grumpy old man. Um, and that kind of worked for a bit. Uh, but I think it's got to a stage now where it's kind of, it's a case of a leopard never changes its spots. Um, Mourinho wants to be the best. He still sees himself as being one of the best. And when he isn't, it visibly annoys him and he starts to sort of blame and lash out at other people. So I think it's just further evidence that the game now is different the one that he was so successful in earlier in his career and he just he just isn't able to adapt with it yeah i think you both made a lot of interesting points there on on that last one you were making there sam i I think a big thing that's damaged him and i mentioned this earlier in the year is one nil doesn't work when any foul can be a penalty (laughs) immediately it could be one one if you're drawing it could immediately be a loss it did his system did not account for that possibility and now it's everywhere. And I don't think at any club before has he had a mix of center backs that have all been responsible for goal-causing errors. Like, he just can't trust the defense. And so I think what was really interesting was midweek, uh, apparently Mourinho just told the players to have fun on the pitch, and we scored five goals and lost. Um, so, or was it 5-4? 6-5? It was absurd, regardless. Um, <laughs> but we saw what happens when we played one more attacking player. Instead of it just being Son, Kane, and Ndombele getting forward, Ndombele actually stayed back a little bit further. You had Lamella, Lucas, Son, and Kane. And so all of the goals came because we had another attacking a player that could get forward. And then we also conceded infinite goals at the other end because Davinson Sanchez failed to ever develop. Toby Alderweireld is aging. Eric Dyer can play great defensive football for 80 minutes and then concede a penalty. Um, Joe Roden's like 12. And uh, who am I missing? Oh, and he considers Tanganga a wingback. And even though he played pretty well at, at Manchester City playing on the right, uh, he's probably not long-term. It is not a good mix of players. And I think that's also a big impact is he just cannot trust the defense. So he has to play even more defensively to protect them. I think we're fourth or fifth in the league in goals conceded, which is not bad. It's just bad because we're going to need six to eight players to defend while only three-ish get forward ever. Um 
but yeah, it's it's really not a good time. Bringing up the Manchester United period, I think, makes sense, as does the Chelsea one, where collectively a very talented team just suddenly was way worse. Although, I, I think, Sam, you also mentioned that this was already happening under Poch. The reason Pochettino was sacked was that just nothing was going right. Um, the luck, the play style, the form, just all of it just wasn't clicking at the time. And it does feel like that's come again. And, and Jim, I do agree. It feels like the, the Mourinho timeline has been hyper compressed. And I think the main hope is that we can win either the Carabao Cup or the uh, Europa League. You obviously kicked out of the FA Cup. The title seems unlikely considering we're currently ninth and... Uh, <laughs> A healthy 17 points back, it looks like, <laughs> from Manchester City. Okay. Yeah. So it, it, you were saying there that obviously the hope is that you win the Carabao Cup, right? Or the Europa League. Mm. Is that enough to tolerate another season of Mourinho? Because this is my issue with Mourinho. Often he wins things, and particularly you know, at Manchester United, they missed out on the Champions League, but they scrambled in um, against Ajax in 2017 in the Europa League final, mm-hmm. which is like the back, the ultimate back door for a team of Manchester United stature. A goal that Devins and Sanchez conceded, by the way, which is a fun little <laughs> twist of irony to it. So, okay, so if say for example you win the Carabao Cup, like, but then if Mourinho stays on for another year, is that not just? putting back the potential to actually develop as a team and as a squad. But this is my issue with Mourinho. No matter how often you might win uh, a trophy of some repute, and maybe maybe at Tottenham, the fact that you haven't won a lot of silverware in the recent past is enough to kind of put that argument forward that that's a good thing. But ultimately, a Carabao Cup in front of no fans, you know, how much is that going to do for him if, next December you're ninth again and out of the title race and looking up thinking oh sixth would be a good achievement at this point like that is that just a sticking plaster over a wound that needs more kind of further investigation investment and potentially a change of regime to fix that is a great question I think man this is hard I tweeted this the other day this is the first time I've ever been worried that Kane might actually leave and it's because mm-hmm. I don't think he would stick around for another regime change. With that in mind... But my, how much is he getting out of the, the Mourinho regime? What, like, have you seen he, how he's been playing? Have you seen his goal or assist tallies? Harry Kane is a very injury-prone player. Like, mm. We were kind of joking before the pod about him being injured for the Super Bowl every year. And like yeah. that's not coincidence. He's just injury-prone. Like He's just made of shredded wheat, seemingly. And, Specifically like, the that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, but but also part of your managerial kind of pastoral relationship there should be to rotate him in a degree that allows him to play in your most important games. And it just doesn't seem like there's a, a plan B there. Like mm. you've got Gareth Bale on the bench. Like why is Gareth Bale even there? Like even if Tottenham are paying 30% of his wages, mm-hmm. which are astronomical, like why is he even there if you're not even ever using him? Like this is a guy who's won the Champions League multiple times at Real Madrid. He's had this massive impact on one of the biggest clubs in the world, and he's bench-warming in cup games. Like, that, to me, is bizarre. Yeah, as Sam said, there's definitely that um, picking fights with the big names thing. He's certainly distancing himself from that signing. And also, Gareth Bale hasn't been that good when we've played him. He had the one good Mm -hmm. moment at the weekend, but it is not great that he hasn't been able to automatically win that position over Bergwijn or Lucas. Like that is that's yeah. not a good situation at all. But yeah, you're right. We we certainly should have gotten more out of him than we have. Um, but anyway, to to answer your original question though, I think it is worth sticking with Mourinho into next season if it means we still get to keep Kane and Son because Son allegedly already has verbally agreed to sign his contract. We just aren't announcing it yet because of how bad a look it would be um, during the pandemic. Much like what happened at Arsenal. I forget who they. Signed was it Thomas Partey right before they fired Gunnar Soros, and everyone was like, yes. "You paid fifty million for this player and <laughs> yeah. sacked a guy that was on or like ten k a year." Where they got him on a free transfer and they paid him all that money in wages, and they were like, "Exactly." Okay, so you just laid off, like laid off the tea lady and paid William <laughs> exactly. And so they were trying to avoid that situation, and I think they were pretty confident. You know, in December when we were first, they were pretty confident that Kane and Son were both going to sign long term contracts. Neither of them actually wound up doing so. So if keeping Mourinho through the summer makes them think 
that that's actually the future and that they can stay and continue to thrive. Because while the rest of the team has struggled, those two have had very good seasons. It, I would be willing, personally, as Kevin DeVries, to sign up for six more months of whatever the hell this is because it isn't football if it meant retaining both of them long-term. Win a Carabao Cup, get a, get a photo of Lloris and Kane holding up a trophy. That's worth it to me now. It wouldn't be worth it to me if you'd asked me this decision the day we sacked Pochettino. It, it has been such a transformative shift in the mindset of some of the fan base of the Pochettino era didn't matter because we didn't win anything and the Mourinho era matters because we might versus we enjoyed the Pochettino era and everyone unanimously hates the Mourinho era thus far. So I, I know I've mentioned it before on the show when we've talked about this, but Pochettino had a great quote where they asked him, you know, does he feel disappointed that he hasn't won titles. And he said, you can only win a title four or five times a year. Football is about the other yeah. 340 and change. Um, and I think that, that that's way closer to the mentality of the Tottenham supporter base than the three to five days of glory. Like I mentioned, only two now <laughs> up for grabs. Um so yeah, I'd say it's worth it if we can lock down those players long term, if Kane and Sons can still see their future here. I think if Mourinho goes in the summer, Kane probably does if anybody can stump up the money. Son might still stay. I know he feels a very, very strong loyalty after we stuck with him through all of his Asia games, yeah. potential departure stuff. Um, and I think that might actually stick longer than the Kane is just from there um, thing. But how, how much is Champions League? football both in terms of the financials and the kudos for the players like Kane and Son who want to be playing in the best competition in the yeah. world from a European football perspective like if you miss top four Again, and you don't win yeah. the Europa League is that how much of an impact is that going to have on their do you think but I appreciate <laughs> you're not their agent and you wouldn't be talking to us if you were <laughs> I still would but you two agree. My point is like there's a there's a prestige in playing yes. in the Champions League, and I know not I know money can solve things that like that, but Tottenham aren't also aren't a club that are going to double someone's wages to keep them at the club. Like they're not Manchester United; they won't mm. just pay you two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week because yep. they can't. Like their their finances, their wage structure, their stadium repayments, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and especially in an era where all you're relying on is TV money, like that's not allowed, right? You're not mm -hmm. going to be able to just put Kane's money overnight to keep him, even if you're not in the Champions League. Yeah. I'd, I'd say the big changes would basically be, if, if we miss out on on the top four, I'd say the big changes are probably question mark on Kane. If somebody can pay it, he might be wanting to go. Uh, then Son and Ndombele would be the only two that I'd really be worried about. Delhi doesn't really matter anymore. Our entire back line is... Uh, uh, bad <laughs> I don't think any of them could be like I deserve to play in the Champions League Aurier might be able to find whoever finishes like third or fourth in France um, Regulon could be bought back by Real Madrid which would give us a lot of money but deprive us of a player that we've missed sorely we've lost five out of six since he got injured um, but on the whole I, I don't think we have that many players that are good enough to demand playing in the Champions League these days um, so yeah, we, we could lose some high profile players. It would certainly, uh, be a disappointing time to see that kind of regime change happen with a squad change at the same time, but that might be what's needed to be honest. Mourinho was brought in to try to maximize our potential right now with Toby aging, Hugo aging, Kane and son and at their absolute primes. The idea was Poch isn't going to win anything with this group can Mourinho. And uh, I guess that that'll still be the the benchmark by which he's measured. So I don't think he'll be gone this year. But from an outside perspective, do you guys think that Mourinho will be Tottenham's manager by the start of next season? I think he will still be there at the start of next season. Because mm. uh, to sack him would mean for Daniel Levy to admit a mistake, which is something I don't think he seems particularly and pay like fifteen million and do that as well. Um, but you know, it, as, as you guys have been saying, it's also worth remembering that Spurs could still win something this season, which was kind of, as we've been alluding to, the whole point of appointing him in the first place in a way. Um, so if if Spurs are somehow to find a way to beat City, which is probably the more likely route at the moment of them of them winning a trophy, um, then opt for optics, it would look quite strange if Mourinho were to leave before next season. And you know, just more generally, I think I think managers will be getting a little bit more leeway this year purely because of the strangeness of the circumstances. Um, so 
I think there's a concoction of reasons for why I'd be surprised if he doesn't at least start next season as Tottenham's manager. Yeah, it's tricky because I feel like if you stick with Mourinho, you're kind of buying into giving him some funds for the transfer market as well, given what we've said about the squad needing something of an overhaul. Um, you know, that that kind of comes with the obligation to spend, right? He's It doesn't seem likely that Tottenham are going to go into next season without particularly defensive reinforcements, um, which normally don't come cheap. Um, so it, it's tricky. I mean, Kev, I, I was veering towards no for the answer of will Mourinho still be there to start next season until you said it would cost Spurs £18 million to sack it. <laughs> and, and actually, that, that, change, that would flip my opinion of it because I didn't know it was that much. I suspected it would be a decent payoff, but for a manager that you appointed not that long ago in footballing terms is quite a chunk of change, particularly in the middle of a pandemic when there's no fans and you've got a giant stadium to pay back. Um, mm. So particularly if they win a trophy, I think, yeah, I think Mourinho would stay on that basis because I think that would be enough to kind of get kind of the fans on side a little bit maybe or just kind of like at least get things into the the positive spin that okay the football might not have been great might have missed the Champions League but if you've got some silverware to put in the trophy cabinet then that's something that Tottenham fans will kind of cherish right even from yeah. a behind closed door standpoint um, and it's something that I think some clubs become almost numb to like it, it got Arsene Wenger through three years at Arsenal when all they used to do was win the FA Cup every year yeah um, so it might well get Mourinho through year one of, of being Tottenham manager, for sure. Yeah, and I will say that we have all couched our answers with if Tottenham win something, if Tottenham don't win sure. something this year, I wouldn't be surprised if he leaves. And then that cascade of potentially departing players uh, follows. Um, all right, next I wanted to talk to you guys about uh, our squad. So obviously we're past January. All the squads are locked here till the end of the season, unless somebody signs somebody on a free, uh, just all freaky styles. But I'm not really sure our registering works at that point. So we'll just go with squads are set now as a premise. Um, how confident are you that your club will reach whatever the objectives were coming into the season now that you know we're at least halfway through the season and we know who's going to be playing through the rest of it? I am relatively confident in Leicester's squad um, at the moment. It's, it's tricky because the Europa League has not been on the agenda for like two and a half months. And the fact that we qualified so quickly through the group, like I think we were qualified after four matches. Um, so we were able to somewhat treat games five and six as like, not freebies, but like opportunities to not necessarily deploy the big guns. Um, so it hasn't really been an issue for us for months and months and months. And I just worry that once the Europa League comes back in, it's going to have a really detrimental impact on some decent league form that we've built up. But given that everyone seems to be kind of tripping over themselves a little bit in that top four race, I hopefully think that we'll have enough to stay on because now Vardy's back. He's had his operation that was clearly bothering him well before um, he actually had the operation. I think I saw a quote that they were hoping to delay it till the end of the season um, and just kind of do it in the summer, but it was a hernia issue that they thought better to address and he came back in like 14 days. Um so hopefully that's him back to his very best now, because if that is, I think we'll, we'll be able to make the top four. Um, it's going to be hyper competitive, but the position that we're in now and the performances that we've been able to put in recently give me plenty of hope that as long as the Europa League doesn't take too much out of us, then we'll be fine. But again, the Europa League offers an opportunity to get into the Champions League as well. So even if we dropped out, if we did manage to win the Europa League, which isn't beyond the realm of possibility, we're certainly not favourites for that because there's some big teams in it. But I think the squad is is in a decent place. We're probably more healthy now than we've ever been at any point of the season, even accounting for James Justin's ACL injury. Um, at least we've got that spine of our squad fit now in terms of two first-choice centre-back pairing, Defensive midfield sorted, main outlet attacking wise is sorted. So yeah, I think I think we're in decent decent shape. Like Leicester have been battling injuries pretty consistently all the way through the season. Um, so I think we're we're in decent shape. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite depressing actually to hear Jim uh, talking about the potential downside of the Europa League when there's a Palace fan who do anything for <laughs> even just kind of getting to like the first qualifying round or something. But um, but yeah, it's kind of you're asking this question at a time when. I suppose Palace are kind of at the point where 
it's probably our biggest injury crisis of the season. Obviously, Zaha being out at, at any time is an injury crisis for Palace, even if everyone else is fit. Um, but on top of that, we've also got James Tompkins out injured, Mamadi Sacco, um, James McCarthy, James McCarthy, a uh, couple of others as well. I think it's nine in total at the moment who are out injured. Jeffrey Schlupp as well, who's actually somehow become a really integral player for us and has been quite a noticeable absence. Um, but, you know, given that Palace have shown very little ambition of getting into the top 10 this season, I can only assume that our objective at the start of it was to avoid relegation. And I think I'm still fairly confident that we will manage that, um, primarily because of the number of points that we have on the boards and that I just don't think any of the teams currently in the bottom three are necessarily going to be able to get themselves out of that situation. Um, I know Fulham are playing now and winning, obviously, and actually looking very good. But, you know, you look at the table now, Palace are on 29 points, which is, well, we'll be 11 clear of Fulham in the 18th, assuming they hold on here. Um, but, you know, given that they've only managed 18 points from, well, what will be 18 points from 23 games, and there just haven't been, there hasn't been that much evidence to suggest that either they... West Brom or Sheffield United are going to be able to more than double those points tallies with less than half of the season to play, which I think is realistically what you would need to stay in the division. Um, and I do think it would take a massive capitulation from Palace to get sucked into that as well. Um, based on recent evidence, you know, there's every reason to suggest that Palace could capitulate, but I just think with the number of points we have on the boards, combined with the fact that you'd assume Zaha will probably have a say in a few more matches between now and the end of the season, which, as we all know, is crucial to Palace picking up points, should mean that we'll be able to stumble to that 36-point mark or whatever it is going to be this year to stay in the league. And I know that sounds really pessimistic and sort of down and dreary, but it is just kind of a bit of a... It does reflect just how poor we've been in the last Mm. couple of games. And, you know, if... If Zaha does turn out to be, if if the injury does turn out to be quite serious and he is out for a prolonged period of time, then there are just serious questions about where not just the next win, but the next point is going to come from because he really does have a transformative effect on the team. Yeah, I'm sure part of the hope was that uh, Barry Eze would be the kind of solution to that prolonged issue of what happens when uh, Zaha is out. And I've, from from outside looking in, it seems like he's had a very good start, but maybe hasn't become that a. Uh, talismanic presence that Zaha obviously is for you and like you said you only need two or three more wins <laughs> to be safe <laughs> and there are 14 left like in theory you should be more than fine um for Tottenham we talked about it earlier going into the season um a week before the season started we were just hoping for top four two weeks into the season when the window closed we were certain we'd get top four with maybe a title push when we signed Bale and Regulon and Vinicius and and Roden all in the last week of the window um now i think we're just back to hoping for for top four obviously not looking great right now you you can still have hope maybe that everton or villa or west ham will will cool off i think we play all three of them still in the league if memory serves so a chance to kind of make our own make our own claim (laughs) i talked about in like november or december uh that teams can't count on leicester falling down the table and that historically doing so hasn't gone well and i feel like that's still uh that's still the case with you all the way up in in third at the moment so top four will be a very very mighty stretch Uh, i don't know if it's better to just kind of concede that point and focus on the europa league and hope to win it but that feels like a strategy that happens when you're playing well and you're like, well, we're playing well, but not well enough to cover this this points gap in the Premier League, um, which is, you know, worth noting. It is currently just four points between us in ninth and, and uh, Liverpool in uh, fourth. But if you're playing well, you can be like, OK, well, I like our chances in the cup as things currently are not playing well, as I mentioned, a worse run in 14 years. So a trophy in top four was the hope. We're technically on track for one of them. If we align them and the Europa League title is what we get and it gives us a spot in the Champions League, I think that's the best hope, but very hard to be optimistic at this point in time. All right, we will take a quick break and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. Jim, we'll start off with you talking about Leicester. There was a really good quote from James Madison uh, after yet another win from you, obviously, against Liverpool, when he said that you've got injuries, by the way. (laughs) It doesn't get talked about because you're not part of the air quotes big six, but you're doing well. And you're right up there, and it's not a fluke. Is that a sense that's still going around Leicester, that you still aren't really being considered one of the big boys, despite the fact that you've won the title more recently than several of them and are currently in third, despite a heavy injury list? Yeah, I think that's probably always going to be a gripe for Leicester fans. And actually, it was really refreshing, I thought. I have my issues with Madison, mainly that he can't beat the first man at a corner, given 20 attempts. Um, and our kind of issues there aside, he actually talks really well and really honestly, and I really enjoy his post-match interviews because quite honestly, he doesn't talk in cliches like a lot of footballers do. He tends to kind of at least put a little bit of thought and he's not afraid to pose questions like that um, and raise kind of like issues like that because everyone seems to be talking about Liverpool's injury list at the moment. And yes, they're missing Virgil van Dijk, who's one of the leading um, kind of centre-backs in the world, maybe one of the, the best in the world, um, certainly was the, the kind of key point, the foundation of their title um, charge. But, I mean, they start an incredible like group of players on a weekly basis. Like Leicester have missed several big names throughout this season, um, came into it with injuries, have picked up more injuries since. And yeah, maybe it's just kind of something that I think it probably galvanises Leicester players, to be honest, the fact that we're not talked about in the same ilk as the traditional big six, despite the fact that we finished inside the top six several times in the last few years. Um, people still think of like Arsenal, for example, in the top six versus Leicester, who've had consistently better results than them um, in the league for the last few years. But if that's something that stokes the fire um, and gets players going and actually kind of that siege mentality, underdog status that people want to rail against and prove people wrong I'm absolutely fine with that um as I said we're probably healthier now than almost at any other point in the season um so yeah it's hopefully something that kind of people can keep writing us off and as you said Kev it's sometimes a dangerous thing to say oh Leicester won't stick around up there yes we did bottle it at the end of last season um for sure and that's something that that's a mental um barrier I think a lot of our current squad are going to have to get over because we were such locks for the top four um, when the season got suspended and then to come back and just win I think we only won like four games after the resumption and just kind of dropped out the last day against Manchester United was just heartbreaking basically Um, so that's still something we're going to have to get over and that's a, a label that's maybe going to follow us around until we can book that trend but I feel I feel pretty confident that we'll be able to kind of stay the course this season for a number of reasons. But yeah, if the, it's interesting to see that kind of like behind the curtain element and how the players kind of view it. And granted, not everyone maybe sees it the same way as Madison does. But yeah, I thought it was really illuminating the fact that he kind of said, you know, he was quite pointed about his, his in his kind of criticism of the media and the way that Leicester are portrayed sometimes as kind of also runs when they're very much in the same conversation as the Manchester United's and. Chelsea's and Liverpool's who get way more um, press coverage despite being inferior in the table at that point. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. And to avoid just repeating cliches and everything like that, I suppose we should talk about the match as well. We had Jamie on right after they beat Liverpool and we talked about how when a smaller club beats a bigger club, the media narrative tends to be what did big club do wrong, not did 
how did air quotes smaller club manage to to win it so from your perspective how did Leicester beat Liverpool what was the blueprint there I'm still not sure um we weren't very good for 75 minutes of that game um I think it's one of those matches where you have to kind of look at it and be like we burgled that a little bit um it seemed to me that we weren't playing possum deliberately we weren't just very we just weren't very good um particularly in the first <laughs> half and then obviously Liverpool went ahead and the heads kind of like certainly from a, a supporter base I think a lot of heads probably would have went down then because you're like well we've shown nothing um you know we had a couple of glances I guess like Jamie Vardy had a couple of chances but we weren't like dominating or, or really operating in the same kind of counter-attacking way um, that we have done and also I I had this big thing before the game about Brendan Rodgers against Liverpool like I feel like this, well, I did until until the weekend's game, but I felt like there was still a big kind of mental barrier there. His record against Liverpool, obviously being his former club, has been terrible. Um, And we've put in some really, really poor performances just out of nowhere. We've played really, really well for a consistent spell. And then we played Liverpool and it's just gone to pot. We've just done nothing. Um, So I was concerned there'd be a mental barrier there. And it just seemed to be that, the first goal, the kind of free kick that was then wasn't, and then we had, well, in the build up to that, there was like a debatable penalty, which then got ruled as the free kick on the edge of the area, which Madison then scored from, which we then had a VAR review about for two or three minutes. And then, I mean, Liverpool just seems to press the self destruct button a little bit. Like, I think we were very much aided in that three points by Allison clashing into his new defender and kind of setting a I mean that's that's the biggest gift you can ask for basically like the keeper charging 35 yards out off his line collapsing into a central defender and even <laughs> Jamie Vardy was for his feet in an open goal you know you can't ask for much more than that um so I do think it was somewhat wind assisted in the sense of like I don't think we played particularly well but then that seemed to galvanize us and obviously then we went for the jugular a little bit more and Barnes got the third and that's game set and match but we're not so yeah it, it, I don't think we did anything particularly well I think it's just one of those where you got to hold your hands up a little bit and say we probably got a little bit lucky there because 60 minutes in when Liverpool were in front I don't think there was not many people saw a way back um, and I think it's just one of those happy coincidences that Leicester were able to kind of be um, kind of incisive enough and clinical enough to take the chances that were presented and then kind of go from there and see it out. I think that's just kind of the evolution of this squad under Rodgers. There's probably more belief now than there's ever been um, due to the way that that we're operating. But yeah, I think Liverpool gave us as much of a helping hand as you can expect from a big team. So not an example where the the smaller team did a lot of stuff. I, well, I wouldn't like to put it this way. I wouldn't like to give a one nil head start to every big team that we play between now and the end of the season <laughs> and hope that ends up in a three one win. That's for sure. <laughs> or that their goalkeeper will just sprint out and yeah. make contact with their new center back on his first appearance. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, not the dream debut that Kabak certainly would have been hoping for. And also, a lot of the air quotes great goalkeepers in the Premier League right now really out of form right now. Uh, maybe something to keep an eye on as, as we move forward. Um, Sam, coming to you now uh, to talk a little bit about Crystal Palace. As you've said, things not going well for you at the moment. A feeling I can certainly empathize with. And we talked about Jose Mourinho and his role and what's going on there. It seems like you're already being linked to new managers in the summer. Uh, Cooper from Swansea seemingly being the one that's being mentioned the most at the moment. How much weight are you putting into rumors like that? And and do you think this might actually be the beginning of the end for uh, your manager after so many times that we've talked about whether or not Roy was actually on the hot seat or not? I think um, it's not a surprise to see names being linked. And I think there's just a growing acceptance that this is Hodgson's last season. Um, and I think part of the problem is that everyone knows it. So uh, we're kind of in this state of purgatory at the moment where we're essentially just waiting for something to happen. We're kind of kicking the can down the roads, um, delaying a decision on his future. So there's just a lot of uncertainty around the place and it's starting to be very much reflected in the performances. Um, and to be honest, it's all just very, very grim to watch. Uh, it's interesting because you kind of you look at the table and on paper you're thinking, okay, Crystal Palace, 14th in the league. You're not really expecting them to be lower it's than fine. that. You're not expecting them to be much yeah. higher than that. Yeah, it's fine. 29 points. I think if we'd won on 
if we'd won on Saturday, I think it would have been our, I think it would have been our best points tally at that stage of the season after 24 games. Whatever oh, wow. it is. So, you know, <laughs> on paper, it just seems completely bizarre that there is this kind of um, discontent among the fans at the moment. But I think it's quite telling. Our last two games, Burnley and Leeds, I've actually got friends who support both of those sides. Um, and after each of those games, they've texted me saying, how on earth have you managed to get 29 points this season? They've both said that, we've the, that we're the worst team they've played. Um and I think anyone who's kind of consistently watched us over the course of this year will be able to tell you that there are some really worrying signs there. Um, I'm not sure who it was on commentary yesterday for Sky, but at the end of the game, he described it as an off day for Palace. But, you know, the problem is those performances and those kinds of results really aren't an anomaly for us at the moment. Um, since mid-December, we've lost, I've got it written down here, we've lost 7-0, 3-0 against 10 men, 4-0, 3-2 at home to West Ham when it really could have been five or six, um, two nil at Leeds and now three nil at home to Burnley. Um, conceded 42 goals this season, the joint second worst record in the league. And, you know, you think of Palace under Hodgson historically and you think of a team that's been difficult to break down, good on the counter, basically stays in the game for large periods of it. Um, you know, they're very, re- very rarely kind of more than a goal behind. Um but what that run of results kind of tells you is that the poor performances are getting poorer um, and are becoming more frequent. The margin of defeat is getting wider and the confidence of the players just seems to be being eroded. Um, so, you know, it's it's not just kind of the results, it's the manner of the defeats. I know that's kind of a cliche thing to say, but the types of goals we're conceding, they just kind of give the impression of a, of a group of players that unfortunately don't necessarily believe in what the manager is trying to do anymore and I don't, I don't think there's great shame in that I'm not accusing the players of downing tools because I think I think they respect Hodgson and I think Palace fans respects the job that Hodgson has done for us but I just think that after nearly four years these kind of very rigid methods just aren't getting through anymore and quite frankly the players look a bit bored um, and what it's leading to is some really really demoralizing performances not only against the team's towards the top of the table, but also against the sides around us. And, you know, maybe maybe it's kind of exacerbated because of this kind of situation that we're all in at the moment where you don't kind of have that whole match day experience where even if you go to a game and your team gets beaten 2-0, you've at least had a pint with your pals before the game or you get to go, oh, go back yeah. on the train off and you get it all out of your system. Now it is just literally those 90 minutes you sat and watch, all it is is kind of the result and the performance. So it is just becoming increasingly frustrating to kind of see us not competing um, with teams that historically we have been able to compete with. So, you know, going back to what I was saying before, one of the biggest supposed benefits of of having Roy Hodgson as your manager is that he supposedly makes you organise, makes you difficult to beat. But now that we aren't either of those things, I think a lot of fans are asking themselves, quite frankly, then, then what's the point of having him here at all? Sounds very similar to conversations <laughs> right now. Um, and you did mention there are a lot of injuries, so some bad luck in that regard. But another thing that's of note is that you tend to be pretty loyal to your players and try to grow them internally rather than just replace them every time, you know, some hot European prospect bats their eyelashes in London's general direction. Um, so very stable. I mean, the, the names that have the most minutes played for you this year are very familiar. Gaeta, obviously, Van Anholt, Dan, Ward, Cahill. Sacco less, obviously, because of injuries, as per Kriate, Zaha, MacArthur. Like, these are, Schlupp is still there, Ayu, Benteke. This is, for the most part, the squad that you've had for several years now. Do you think that part of it is just staleness within the squad, period? Do you think that the current staleness, like you mentioned, might be because of Hodgson's methods? Just curious as to where you think that that particular ball falls with, with the static nature of both the squad and the manager. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly the point. There's this, there's a kind of staleness running through the club at the moment, to be honest. Um, and it just feels like it is in need of a complete refresh, really, which, you know, a pandemic definitely isn't the best time to be doing that. Um, and, you know, you can blame Hodgson, which a lot of people are doing. You can blame the players, which a lot of people are doing. But there are also some questions that have to be asked to the board, which less people are doing because they've kind of allowed us to get to this situation where we did start yesterday's game with five players who are out of contract in the summer. Um, and if they haven't been offered a new contract yet, then the likelihood is that they aren't going to be here beyond the season. Then you've got a manager who is also in the last year of his contract, who has been saying publicly that he has no absolutely no idea what his future is. He's happy to just 
keep clocking along, which obviously indicates that he isn't going to be here either. And you've got these stories swirling in the background, as you say, looking us to Cooper, looking us to Eddie Howe. Um, so yeah, you've kind of you've got the situation where a lot of people involved at the moment know that Crystal Palace Football Club isn't part of their future. Um, and if you think about that in any other industry, if your boss tells you you're serving a three, four month notice period before being let go, your mo- your motivation is naturally going to dwindle. Um, that's just kind of human nature. That's just sort of what happens. So um, I think we're really seeing that in the performance at the moment. Players just going through the motions, not really looking like they want to be there. Um, so yeah, as I say, it does feel like almost like this state of purgatory at the moment where we are just waiting for this rebuild to happen. Um, and I don't think the magnitude of this rebuild can be overstated, to be honest. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the players there. Um, they're all, it's been well documented that we've got a very old squads, and that's been part of the reason that we've been overrun in a lot of games this season. Um, I think before the campaign started, we sort of thought there were certain areas of the pitch that we were strong in, but it's quickly become apparent that, you know, there's going to need to be investment in defence, midfield and attack, just purely because of how many of those players are probably going to need to be moved on. Yeah, and then we can talk about all this kind of dire stuff around Crystal Palace at the moment, but odds that Zaha comes back and you just win like three in a row and the entire tenor <laughs> changes? Well, that's, yeah, that's the problem though, isn't it? It's like Zaha's not going to be here forever. Um, and as much as we all love watching him play, as much as um, we will appreciate how much he's done for the club, it is just slightly depressing that we can't win without him. Um, you know, there's there's lots of reasons that he makes us better beyond just his goals, beyond the threat that he is. He makes other players on the pitch better. His pace means that we can transition from defence to attack a lot quicker. Um, and I think it's generally just a psychological boost for our players to know that they've got a teammate like that on the pitch. Whereas, you know, for the other teams, it's a huge psychological advantage when he isn't playing. Um, and, you know, the, the evidence is getting increasingly more bleak. You know, I think in the five games that we've been without him this season, we've lost all five, conceded 12, scored none. Um, so, yeah, all the stats literally point to us being a one-man team, which I think myself and most sensible Palace fans have accepted for now. Um, that's 18 of the last 20 without him that we've lost, I think, which, you know, that's not just, <laughs> that's not just relegation form. That's bottom of the league, Derby County, 2007, 2008 form. Mm. Um, so, you know, for... As you say, obviously, the, there is kind of the hope that he'll, I'm sure when he does come back in, we'll manage to pick up some points again. But, you know, that's just not sustainable. And I think that's kind of something that fans are starting to see now. He's got two years left to run in his contract. Um, you know, the, the club basically has a decision to make this summer, either if someone comes in for him offering 30, 40 million. Um, if, if clubs are still going to be willing to offer that much for him, then it's, I think that's a deal that the club will really have to seriously consider. Um if no one comes in for him, then, you know, do you go back to him and offer him a new contract? Because at this stage, you're almost running the risk of losing him for free in a couple of years' time, which I think would also be a massive disaster because it, because I think the club is sort of pinning a lot of their hopes on either having him here um, or having the money for a long period of time or have, yeah, exactly, or having the money. So, you know, in the short term, yes, yeah, our being fit again and coming back is, would obviously be great, but I think there's, he holds the keys to a lot of kind of the answers about what, what the future is going to be for us. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of parallels to Ericsson with us or even Alexis when he was at Arsenal of like that, that choice of what do you do? Do you try to keep them as they mm. age on potentially a bad contract? Do you let them walk? And then what if they're good again? Do you sell them for like well, a smaller fee because they might leave, but then turn things around? It's, it's a, it's a really dangerous situation. Yeah, well, the problem is as well, Zaha's not, he's, he's not getting any worse. <laughs> he seems to be getting, like his stats this year have um, probably been better than they have been ever before. Uh, but that's kind of, that's the thing. It's, is this the point to cash on cash cash in on him is the question. Um, and I don't think any Palace fans, to be honest, at this stage would begrudge him the move because <laughs> quite frankly, I think, watching him have to play with the rest of our players every week is getting a bit frustrated. You can tell that he's frustrated by it and it's almost at the stage where you think, well, it'd be quite nice to go and see, it'd be quite nice to see what he could go and do elsewhere. I know obviously his, in the past that move at United didn't work out, but you could argue that that came too soon for him. Uh, I think he's a lot more mature now. Um, he's a lot more rounded player. So I think in a way there's like 
but it's certainly part of me that's interested to see how he would do at a club either in the Europa League or in the Champions League. Yeah, well, we'll certainly keep an eye on it, and hopefully, you get to see him in the flesh uh, again before uh, before that <laughs> potential departure winds up happening. Uh, all right, we will head from talking about Zaha to talking about other players and player watch. I was just curious to hear from you guys who you think will score the most goals for your club between now and the end of the season. Uh, it's a very obvious answer, but Barney <laughs> will be Leicester's top goal scorer. Um, but I did have a thought about the top goal scorer generally. I do think someone like Calvert-Lewin, I know Everton have not played particularly well as we record today, but I do think someone like Calvert-Lewin or Patrick Bamford could be up there, kind of in and around the, the top goal scorer stakes, possibly because of the fact that they don't have Europe to deal with. Um, I think when, mm. obviously, Kane and Vardy are kind of in the in the mix as well, and obviously Salah and Fernandes. But if you look at those clubs and the effect of playing twice a week versus playing once a week, if someone like Calvert-Lewin could stay fit for Everton, who do score like with semi-regularity is their main attacking outlet, then you could see him getting to like 20-something goals and that 22-23, that, that could be in the mix for the top goal scorer this season. Um, when you consider like the other factors and players being rotated and things like that, especially if teams start prioritising European games over league games, if if it comes to that point um, at the end of the season. So, yeah, Vardy will be Leicester's top goal scorer, but I don't think he'll have enough this year to, to win the Golden Boot because we'll just need him on too many fronts. Um, he'll need to perform in, in Europe as well as the league. And although we're not going to we're not going to prioritise Europe over the league. I do think there'll be minutes kind of where if we are up, for example, he's rotated and he's rested with a midweek game in mind or vice versa. Um, so it could be that it's kind of at the age of 33, 34, he's, he's potentially pushing that a bit too far um, for another golden boot run. But yeah, it would be interesting to see someone, you know, normally there's a bit of an outsider in the top couple um, of, of the, the top goal scorer stakes. And it could be, I think, either Calvert-Lewin or Bamford this year, um, where they're just able to take advantage of the fact they're not playing twice a week when everyone else starts to. Yeah, I think uh, Palace is <laughs> he's going to score the most goals for Palace until the end of the season. It's a pretty obvious answer as well, as long as he plays. So this um, is just a bad question in general. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he plays, it'll be Zaha. Um, if not, then, geez, you're, your guess would be as good as mine. You could like close your eyes and pick a name out of a hat, to be honest, because... A few players for Palace tend to get past two or three goals a season, unless it's Zaha. Um, Eze, maybe, he's, as you said before, Kev, he's been really, really impressive this season. I think with a player like that coming into the Premier League, you always know that there's going to be some sort of betting in period and getting used to the kind of getting used to step up. But I think he's handled that really, really well, especially in a team that doesn't necessarily play on the front foot, um, which I think. It's the kind of thing that he's used to doing, you know, seeing a lot more of the ball than he does. So on the on the few occasions that he has been able to get on the ball in the games, uh, he always catches the eye and has obviously chipped in already with some really important goals this season. So, yeah, if if Zaha, you know, is out for a prolonged period of time, then Eze is probably the one that you're looking at to hopefully chip in with a few. And maybe Mateta as well, the new guy. But to be perfectly honest, I have seen very little of him aside from his debut against Leeds, uh, his 10-minute cameo at the weekend, and a couple of YouTube videos. So <laughs> um, whatever goals he scores, I think, will just be a bit of a bonus. Yeah, and he was not in fantastic goal scoring form in Germany the last year-ish. So, yeah, it would be nice if he scored the goals. I still think it's a great signing. But, yeah, it makes sense that you just went with Zaha. Jamie went with Vardy. Uh, probably Kane, Tottenham don't create chances right now. It's just not not what's happening. But uh, that seems a pretty safe one uh, for those wondering why Kane over Sun. Kane has like 10 more shots on target. So, uh, you know, just Kane is a bit more of a volume shooter. But you imagine that that'll lead to more goals uh, on the whole. Although if he gets back to his best and they do what they did at the start of the season where every time Kane touches the ball, he just lobs it forward 40 yards and assumes Sun will get on the end of it. Maybe, uh, maybe that'd invert a bit. All right, uh, we'll end with match previews. We'll start off with you, Jim. Obviously, the midweek match. It's against Slavia Praha, but is it actually against them since half of the European fixtures this week are going to be played in random countries? 
Yeah, I think it is. I haven't heard anything about it being changed. Um, so I assume it is still slated for the original um, venue, unless I've missed something quite significant. I know certain big games in the Champions League have been moved um, venue-wise. But yeah, I think things tend to be okay. Um, certainly don't hear about the Czech Republic being a particular COVID hotspot and stuff. But yeah, I think that's the uh, that's the plan. I don't know a lot about them. Haven't watched them a lot, obviously. Um, but it, it's just one of those where you just want to take something positive kind of back to the home leg, I guess, the second leg. Um, you just kind of want... You don't want to lose, basically. Like a score draw is fine or like a nil-nil where the away goal would be nice, but kind of just some kind of parity going into the second leg would be fine. And I guess this is just where we find out Brendan Rodgers' kind of priority list because now we're sitting in the top four spot. Like if we were in seventh or eighth, for example, you could kind of see him prioritising the Europa League over the league, um, with that being the kind of most um, perceived kind of probable outlet of, of European football next year. But now that we're actually, it's not, a, don't get me wrong, it's not a bad problem to have, but it's also kind of tricky to see how he balances league form versus European form. Um and the kind of the two kind of outlets there. Um, I'd like to see some rotation, but I also feel like he needs to kind of play the big guns. So, for example, you could rest up someone like Ricardo Pereira, who's played a lot coming back from injury. Um, you could potentially slot someone else in there, even though we are down a fullback. Um, you could potentially give someone like um, Thomas like a run out if you wanted to, um, and just kind of rotate a little bit, but. It's tricky. I think he'll probably go pretty full strength and just kind of hope to maybe get ahead early in the game. That's kind of difficult to say, I guess, against a in a knockout round. Like you don't want to dimit I don't want to speak badly of someone like Sparta Prague. Um, but you hope that if we're a couple goals up after an hour, he might rotate with the option of kind of looking ahead to the weekend, basically. Gotcha. And then uh Sam, you're gonna be facing Brighton. Obviously, a derby that like 13% of football fans understand, uh, but assume you're going to really be hoping to get back on track in that one. Hoping, yeah. Uh, expecting to, not so much. Uh, it's, you know, it's probably the worst time for this game, to be honest. I've actually been really impressed with Brighton this season and think they've been in a bit of a false position in the league. So it hasn't been that much of a surprise to see things finally click for them. And given the way we're playing at the moment, I'm not sure I've ever known Palace fans to be so apprehensive going into a game against them usually we're quite positive um when playing Brighton but you know the last I think the last three times we've we've played them to be honest we've we've managed to get five points but to be quite frank we've been second best in each of those games and I think there's there's kind of a sense that they might owe us one and uh you know given the types of goals we've been conceding lately given the number of chances they seem to create there's a fear that things might just click into place for them in this game and we could be on the receiving end of a real thumping but you never know um you know kind of as they say it's kind of the old cliche isn't it that form goes out the window in a rivalry game um and you know we haven't actually been given a timeline on Zaha's injury the club have been quite secretive over that so you do kind of wonder whether they've been keeping it under wraps in the hope that he might be fit for this one but you know, even if he is, we're still going to have to sort out our defending of set pieces, um, coping with balls into the box because our weakness this season hasn't necessarily been going forward as it has been in the past. It's it's been keeping goals out at the other end. So, um, yeah, just hoping for a hoping for a performance that kind of that kind of is worthy of of the occasion. Uh, I think that's kind of all Palace fans are looking for going into this game. Uh, Obviously, the performance is really as important as the result in a game against Brighton. But I think, given how we've played recently, just uh, you know, anything to sort of from the players to sort of make it look to show that they care and understand what this game means to the fans would be would be yeah, very well received. Gotcha. Well, good luck to you and Jim as well midweek uh, there against Slavia Prague. Uh, and then Tottenham, uh, we'll see what happens against an Austrian side, and I even forget which country already. Um, <laughs> that's where we'll leave things, though. If you guys would like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Thanks for listening, guys. 
I'm on Twitter at Jim Knight Tweets. If you want to tell me I'm wrong about anything, um, you can find me there. Yeah, I think that's the best um, best avenue. Other than that, just yeah. Hopefully, looking forward to a good result midweek. Cheers, Kev. Cheers, Jim. Uh, thanks for lending an ear to my rant. Um, uh, I've been Sam Carp. You can find me on Twitter at Sam Double Underscore Carp. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable on Twitter and, and with EPL Roundtable and any of those search bars and any of the podcasting apps, really. Uh, thanks to you two so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure as always. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.